Even if you aren't Billy Joel fans like my friend Jan and I are, you're probably familiar with his iconic tune, Piano Man. The song is based on a slice of Joel's own life. He was apparently in a conflict with his record label in New York, and so moved to L.A. and worked a couple of shifts a week as a pianist in a bar there. The song Piano Man chronicles the real-life stories of the regulars at the bar. There's the bartender, John, who'd rather be somewhere else. In the song, John says, Bill, I believe this is killing me, as a smile ran away from his face. Well, I'm sure that I could be a movie star if I could get out of this place. I love the pathos of that image, as a smile ran away from his face. Then there's Paul, a real estate agent who sits at the bar writing away at what he thinks will be the next great American novel, but who's never had time for a wife. And Davy, who intended a short stint in the Navy where he'd learn some skills and do some traveling, but now he can't seem to get out. A cadre of colorful characters, people whose lives aren't quite satisfactory but who can't seem to move on. At one time, in the past, life had seemed full of possibilities, but now now their horizons have narrowed and they've just settled. The optimism of youth is gone and the obligations of families to tend and bills to pay bring a heavy weight of inertia to any thought of change. They sometimes tell each other stories of what might have been and they use alcohol to numb the pain. They are trapped in their present. Last week, Aaron retold the story of the Old Testament patriarch, Jacob, and how his past as a cheater and schemer stood between his present and his future. This week, I want to look at Esau, Jacob's twin brother, who I think is like the characters in Billy Joel's song, Trapped in the Present. As you may recall, Esau was the elder of twin boys. The younger came out of the womb holding Esau's heel and was named Jacob, a name that carries ideas like grasping and supplanting, a name that he lived up to over the next 40 years. The first story we are told about them involves Jacob cheating Esau out of the birthright that he should have had as the eldest son. One of the problems that we moderns have in entering into these stories is that concepts like birthrights and paternal blessings don't mean much to us. I mean, when we were growing up, if my older brother had come in from the field while I was baking cookies and said they smelled so good he'd trade his inheritance for a handful of them, that would never have stood up in court, even if there had been witnesses. And blessings, the good things we wish for our children, are aspirational thoughts or prayers, but certainly not binding in any way. 
But at the time of Esau and Jacob, things were very different. The day Esau traded his birthright, his future was sealed. He no longer held the privileges of the eldest. He was now effectively the younger son. The incident is pretty revealing of Esau's impulsiveness and failure to consider consequences, and equally of Jacob's conniving and opportunistic tendencies. Once Esau's hunger was met, he may have regretted his rash bargain, but he knew that all was not lost. As the eldest, he was still in line to get his father's blessing, and he knew that his father loved him most, much more than he loved Jacob. Isaac would be able to speak a blessing over Esau that would establish his position and set him up for success. So when the father tells Esau that it is time for that blessing and that he wants Esau to hunt game and prepare a special meal, he jumps to it with alacrity. Alas, all of his hopefulness is thwarted by his eavesdropping mother and his conniving brother. The blessing is given to Jacob. Once again, the heel grabber, the usurper, lived up to his name. Or should I say, lived down to it. This time it was especially bitter for Esau, because he had done everything right, and he was still the loser. Why couldn't his father have been more careful? The anguish of both father and son is palpable as the story unfolds. We read that Isaac started to tremble, shaking violently, and Esau, hearing his father's words, words, sobbed violently and most bitterly and cried to his father, My father, can't you also bless me? Isaac explained, I've made him, Jacob, your master, and lavished grain and wine on him. I've given it all away. What's left for you, my son? Esau sobbed inconsolably and he seethed in anger against Jacob. Esau had lost both of the benefits of the elder son, both the birthright and the blessing. He is furious, and he vows to kill Jacob as soon as their father dies. But there's a twist in the plot. Instead of claiming the birthright and blessing that were now his, Jacob runs away to Padan Aram, ostensibly to get a wife who will be acceptable to his family, but perhaps more importantly, to escape the vengeance of Esau. Twenty or more years go by. We get lots of details of what was happening to Jacob during his time in the East. He certainly meets his match as a schemer, in his father-in-law Laban, whose hijinks include giving Jacob the wrong daughter as his first wife and making Jacob work another seven years to marry the girl he's actually in love with. Despite the obstacles Laban puts in his path, though, Jacob ultimately ends up with two wives, lots of kids, servants, flocks, herds, and wealth. But through all those years, the writer is silent about what's going on in Esau's life. We can infer that he becomes the de facto head of the family, Isaac is feeble and blind, and Jacob is out of the way. 
Esau acquires wealth and influence. We are told that when Jacob does return, Esau comes out to meet him with a troop of 400 men. Despite the lost birthright and blessing, Esau is clearly doing all right for himself. He's both affluent and powerful. But there is one more thing that Esau also has. He has the enmity, the bitterness he holds toward Jacob. Although the cheating and betraying by his brother happened decades ago, Esau's resentment is a piece of baggage that is very much part of his present. He carries it with him wherever he goes. It's perched on his shoulder, ready to remind him that he's been treated badly, very badly, and that he deserves to get even. That is the present that we find Esau stuck in when Jacob returns from Paddan Aram. Bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment. They really are heavy pieces of baggage to tote through life. They're like the worst kind of disease. They're like a cancer because they metastasize. They don't just stay confined to the one issue where they began, but they cast a gloom over other areas of life, reducing our capacity to find joy even in the good things that happen. And bitterness is also like a contagious infection, because those nearby, our families, also get caught up in its sour negativity. Esau was bitter and not without reason as he marched out with his troop of loyal supporters to face Jacob. He, of course, had no expectation that Jacob had changed in any way. He assumed that his brother would be hatching a plot to take up the birthright and status that he'd tricked Esau out of. I don't know how long Esau's march was, but somewhere along the way, he apparently decides the weight of resentment is just too heavy, and he's not prepared to carry it anymore. In doing that, he is actually receiving the blessing that his father had spoken over him some 20 years before. You'll remember that Jacob, the younger twin, got the blessing that had been intended for Esau, the promise that he would have great wealth, that he would be preeminent over his brothers, and that he would be honored by other nations. When the father, Isaac, realizes that he's been tricked into giving that blessing to the wrong son, he can't undo it, but he offers a different blessing for Esau. The words that Isaac speaks over him foretell that his life will be difficult, and he will get the things he needs only through a hard struggle. Isaac closes with these words, You'll serve your brother... But when you can't take it anymore, you'll break loose and run free. Or as another translation has it, But when you decide to break free, you will shake his yoke from your neck. There is more available to Esau, but to get it he has to move forward out of his present space of bitterness and resentment. And he does. The writer of Genesis doesn't chronicle the inward journey of Esau. He leaves home with a troop or a mob ready to defend him and his rights. But by the time he gets to the Jabbok River where his brother meets him, 
He runs to Jacob with open arms, freely embraces him, and weeps as he clings to him. Jacob calls Esau my master, not claiming the firstborn status that he had won by trickery. And Esau calls Jacob my brother, neither claiming higher status or continuing in angry rejection. Esau has found more. Instead of the same old enmity and isolation, he receives family and material wealth in the gifts that Jacob gives him. When they meet, Jacob says that seeing Esau's face was like seeing the face of God. He had expected to meet an Esau full of bitterness and vengeance, but what he found instead was a face full of grace. As I think about the characters in Billy Joel's song, The Real People, whose lives he gives us a snapshot of, I wonder if any of them found more. Did John ever hang up his bartender's towel and get an acting role? Was Paul's novel ever published? Is Davy still in the Navy? I wonder, because I know in my own life the pull of a present, that while not great, is okay, good enough that I'm willing to settle for it. I'm not talking about my career, where I was fortunate to have a series of interesting jobs, nor in my family life where Edwin sailed in upsetting the apple cart and bringing more in every possible way. I'm talking about more in my life of faith. See, in my 40s and 50s, I had settled into a space where I wasn't meeting God in ways that challenged and changed me. I was still going through the motions, attending church, trying to pray and read helpful books. But I was struggling to push down the doubts that kept popping up, pretending they weren't there. I never really faced them because I knew my faith wasn't strong enough to weather them. It was a house of cards where I knew if I pulled out one piece, the whole thing might crumble. And even as I was walling off my doubts from my conscious mind, I was despising myself for being mentally dishonest. And so I settled, settled into a pattern of religious practice where I guess I made a sort of bargain with God that I wouldn't lob any questions at him that were too hard for him. I did think of God as him back then. And I hoped that in return he would protect me from disaster. One little snippet I remember from that period was around the time Edwin and I started coming here to the parish. As I was getting to know some of you and talking about my faith journey, I realized that I didn't have any new stories, no fresh experiences of God to share. There was some solid history, just no current events in my faith journey, and that really troubled me. I've shared with you in the past how I came to new understandings about how to read the Bible and how to pray. Those were critical steps in finding my way to more, and I won't repeat all that. The details aren't important for you because each of us is walking a different path. But while the paths may be different, I am confident that God has more for all of us. It's perhaps a normal progression in human development that the change-the-world enthusiasm we felt in our 20s diminishes over time. 
that the idealistic is replaced with the pragmatic, that the weight of adult responsibility makes us less flexible, less spontaneous, that a string of the kinds of disappointments that routinely, life routinely hands out makes us more guarded and less hopeful. And many of us may actually prefer the stability and security of middle age to the chaos and possibility of youth. And having settled, having settled in, we don't want anything to upset our equilibrium, not even the goodness of God. And yet, and yet I just can't shake the idea that God wants us to have more, wants to give us more, not more stuff but more of God's self. So for those of you who, like me, have settled into comfortable mediocrity, for those who, like Esau, are trapped into bitterness and resentment, for those who, like Philip Yancey, have been disappointed by God, for those who have been so hurt by the church that they don't want to risk again, for those who have had so much already loaded on their plates that they feel like they don't want more, and for those who have tried to follow and for those who have failed, for all of us, there is more. Jesus says to each of us, follow me. In George MacDonald's fantasy novel, Lilith, a young librarian, Mr. Vane, is led by a raven into a magical world. I want to close with one of their exchanges. Mr. Raven points, This is the way. Mr. Vane replies, I'm quite content where I am. Mr. Raven, You think so, but you are not. Come along. Come along.